Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 84 of the Double Density Podcast with your host, Brian and Angelo. Double Density, your home to tech tales and paranormal priorities. Now, first things first, Angelo, uh, back to a two-man group this week. Yeah, for a second I thought you said blue man group, but no, no. two man group. Uh, isn't it a duo instead it's a of a duo, group at yes. that point? Yeah, I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah, yeah, and that's a word you use often in our summaries. The duo. Yeah, you like using the word duo because it, it suggests a team. Yeah. What would you would you rather put like two awkward men? <laughs> no, duo is no. fine. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> uh, huge thanks, of course, to Casey Liz who was on uh, last week's episode. That was that was really fun. Actually, it's kind of different. We got a tech podcaster to open up about the paranormal. A lot of fun. We usually have the paranormal people open up about tech. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a, ne- a neat little switch there. Yeah. But this week we have an interesting slate of uh, topics we'd like to cover that range from the old to the new, uh, from the very tech-minded to the very, um, I don't want to use the word geriatric because I feel it's mean, but the very geriatric-minded I don't even know where you're going with that one, but I, I can't wait to, to hear. Oh, well, okay. Actually, I do know now. I just realized. Okay, okay perfect. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Um, but the first item on the docket this week on the tech side is an article from The Thrillist all about how um, being famous can also doom you. Um, and ostensibly, this article is about uh, burgers, but also about uh, the loss of power one encounters when uh, you hit a certain stratosphere of uh, relative celebrity. I saw this article making the rounds all over the place, all over Twitter, actually, from different sources. And it's because it's, it's a sad sort of piece, something like that was seemingly good, where this burger place gets like the best burgers in America and basically becomes famous overnight. The owner was super happy about it. And then that became the bane of his existence in that they just could not keep up. The Thrillist article is by Kevin Alexander, and it is titled, I found the best burger place in America, and then I killed it. And it kind of goes in depth about the responsibility of um, uh, tastemakers and how they have to watch out for these sorts of things um, in terms of like when you uh, change something that you love through uh, kind of, I don't want to say polluting, but sort of like altering their ecosystem, right? So the idea is that like this uh, Stanish um, burger joint uh, kind of... Uh, had like long lineups and uh, it's, it's sort of explained at the bottom, right? Cause the, uh, the author goes to meet with the owner um, post closure because Stanish closes and there's a sign on the door and it's really sad, but it kind of explains how um, the increase in foot traffic had then, because this is a family establishment um, driven the family sort of insane because of the fact that like they had to up their level of service and then slowly but surely um, the staff became sort of like unhappy a little bit because of the fact that they had to sort of uh, probably work longer hours, deal with more, people becoming burnt out and then also the fact that like the restaurant um wasn't necessarily uh in tip-top shape um towards the end of uh it's po- like sort of like post celebrity phase well it just goes to show that sometimes being unknown is better than being known uh they were known with it within this small circle of regulars that knew that this place served amazing burgers and Part of the charm of that is when you're kind of in the know about a small place, and then if it takes off, sort of like when you, you know, you like to say, I like them when uh, that band before they were big. Do you have a band like that, by the way? Uh, it's Alanis Morissette for me. During her like Alanis years? Yeah, I liked her then. And then when she came out with this completely different album, it blew my mind. And I was like, this is an amazing album. It's going to win album of the year. I think we've talked about this before, and I was totally right about it too. And then she became super popular. Probably, I think at at a certain point, it was the best-selling debut album by a female artist, even though technically it wasn't a debut album. 
Right. Uh, it's a rebranded debut album. And that's the thing is that like, there's a, a bunch of those that exist, um, in terms of like, uh, for Grammy considerations, right? So you see sometimes like best new artists, but really they're on like their third album, but they're first on a major. Yeah. That's exactly what it was in this case is she had two major albums here in Canada, but, uh, that was her first, uh, internationally known album. But in this case, in that case, like fame that was not a curse. She was extremely successful. She's done super well for herself and is right. and uh, well-deserved, too. She's an incredible talent. But in this case, these really great burgers... Oh, I see. You don't even let me talk about my uh, band, but that's okay. That's okay. Brian, what's, what, do you have a band that you like a lot that I, I did. other people liked? Um, so firstly, two quick things. I don't know if you saw recently, but there's an article making the rounds about Alanis asking the question if Alanis was the one to propel the idea of wellness uh, into the pop culture sphere with the supposed former infatuation junkie, which came out like 20 years ago, which I find a really interesting concept. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. I have not seen that article at all. I know that uh, she has a podcast, actually. And it's about wellness and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, um, I, I did try to listen when it's not. A, and even though I really love her music, and uh, I, it's not my type of podcast, so I found it a little hard to listen to. Right. Uh, uh, but still, there was a, the one I listened to was actually interesting. It's well done, but it's not. It's not my cup of tea. So, uh, but I didn't see that article actually. That's okay. a that album itself is a very. Uh, therapeutic album for her. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And uh, to your question about the band, uh, I'm going to say My Chemical Romance. Oh, okay. So okay. I saw them for the first time in 2003, right after I brought you my bullets, You Brought Me Your Love came out. Um, so this is like pre-Black Parade, pre-Helena, pre-everything, everything. And uh, they were like the first of four on a package tour uh, with the headline band Reggie and the Full Effect. You probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Not at all. Not at there all. we go. Perfect. <laughs> I know uh, my sister saw... You too once in a tiny little place in the early 80s in Paris. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, they were in Paris, so they were kind of more or less getting well-known, but it was still a very small venue. And here they are, uh, 30 years, 35 years later, still bugging us. I don't mind you two. Uh, uh, Tim Cook really likes them. <laughs> <laughs> He'll never uh, live that down. No, well, I, when you anger that many people all at once by trying to shove an album into people's faces, it's, it's going to piss people off. There's that and the whole uh, where he touched fingers with Bono. Oh, right. Of. That weird finger, like the two yeah, finger touch. Yeah, that was odd. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember how like, I don't know if you remember this, but like there were a bunch of articles like screaming Illuminati when that came out? Vaguely. Okay. Uh, we've yet to touch on the topic of Apple. And Illuminati. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> the the whole thing that uh, there's aliens involved and all that. We, we <laughs> A lot of research is required for that one. Yeah, exactly. A lot of uh, deep links. I need to get like a whiteboard and draw a lot of different conclusions there. Um, but yeah, coming back to our uh, main topic at hand, burgers, uh, the price of fame, the idea of gatekeeping, the idea of being a tastemaker and uh, keeping into consideration how you change an ecosystem. It's all very fascinating, especially when you consider how fast things move online. If an article written about you becomes huge, you're you're going to be thrust into the public spotlight whether you want to or not. And in this case, owning a restaurant that had a certain capacity and a certain amount of burgers that could be made within a set time limit and they couldn't keep up, it dragged everything down and made them worse than they ever actually were. Yeah, so I think like it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, uh, definitely. A restaurant always wants to be a, a successful, but... It has to be successful within its own means. Yeah, exactly. It has to be organic. Why you don't like GMO foods? <laughs> <sighs> First dad joke of the episode. Great, great, great. Uh, let's move things on to one of the most uh, beloved games on earth. Uh, a game of skill. Uh, not really a game of chance. A game 
um, that pits mind versus mind. I'm talking, of course, about Pong. No, you're not. No, no, I'm talking about chess. <laughs> There's a Bloomberg article that we're linking to in the show notes about how um, chess is sort of still in the forefront of many people's minds, especially in this digital age where kind of like the prevailing wisdom is like quicker, faster, is better, more entertaining. But a lot of people, uh, myself included, have been watching chess, uh, the World Chess Championships online. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was on Twitch, for example. So I spent a couple hours watching that. And it's kind of super calming to watch. Really, I, I have never actually watched a chess match uh, online or otherwise. Uh, I did watch a documentary about a machine, a machine beating people at Go, but not anything about chess, unfortunately. So you haven't seen Gary Kasparov face off against uh, uh, Big Blue, Deep Blue? What was it, the IBM? That, no, I remember hearing about that, and then I saw Deep Blue beat everybody on Jeopardy. Correct, yeah. Well, that's not well, that was Watson, there. actually, right? We are, yeah, it was IBM's Watson. Yeah, similar technology, but uh, we're all going to lose to the machines one day. Sooner or later. I was wondering if we could compare this whole thing of people watching chess, which is like a physical game against one person or the other, but can we compare it to people playing like uh, games like League of Legends or Fortnite or whatever and people watching championships of that? I think there's a, a kind of like through line there. I think there's like a joy of watching uh, great minds at work, whether it be chess or Fortnite or League of Legends or any other sort of MOBA or first person shooter. I think there is um, kind of like that common thread there. It got me back to thinking of when I was younger and I'd go to the arcade to watch people play Street Fighter. Yeah, you want to watch that skill. And this wasn't even Street Fighter 2. This was Street Fighter 1. Uh, so you wouldn't watch people play against each other. You would be uh, amazed at seeing people get further and further in the game. And I remember seeing somebody uh, beat Sagat for the first time, was the, the main boss in Street Fighter. Right. And uh, uh, it was very exciting. Yeah. Uh, but I do think there is a certain level of enjoyment to be had in watching people execute things well. It's why we go see bands play shows, right? So there's something uh, to be said about the virtuosity of people playing these games sort of like an instrument, I guess. For sure. Absolutely. It's a sequence of uh, moves, right? So instead of a fretboard, it's your uh, controlling your hand. Have you seen the people play StarCraft? My God. Yes. The clicking and the moving and the the finger combinations of the keyboard at the same time, yes. I just feel uh, the... Uh, rsi issues that they get oh for sure for sure it's, yeah so those are the injuries that uh sports gamers get so you're not a big fan of watching people play chess you don't like the grandmasters you don't like watching clocks you don't you don't really care for that i can appreciate the intelligence behind it and the strategy um, but it's it's not like look i don't even really, really like watching sports that much well i was about to say like is there an equivalent that would get you to watch chess in the same way that do you remember in the mid to late 90s they were like uh, making the puck glow on TV. oh my gosh yeah so is is there like a, a, a an, an analogous way of sort of like something that they could do in chess to make you like enjoy it like do you i don't know if you've ever Insane played this, announcers like, um one of the weirdest games i've ever played actually is terminator chess really how does that work <laughs> well basically like it's it's the idea of like the humans versus you know the the robots on either side and and every time like a character overtook another character um there would be like an animation oh like okay so it's not physical chess no no no, no. like this is a computer game Oh, okay. Well, that, that, I guess, wasn't there like battle chess at one point? And, yeah, there's a, there's a ton of those things, yeah. Um, so it was, uh, I just looked this up using the power of the internet, and it's called Terminator 2 colon Judgment Day Chess Wars. I'm, I'm just curious, actually. Isn't chess pre-installed on every Mac? I'm just going to look in my applications folder. It was for a time. Yeah, it's there, too. It's still there. Yeah, so it's there for me, too. So everyone can, I the barrier for entry for chess is quite low. Like, you can find, like, Flash apps online. You can find it pre-installed on a Mac. You can find it um, in an pretty much every mobile game store right so 
Although I would highly recommend not playing any Flash things online. No, exactly. Even though... Uh, Chess or otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like this might be a natural extension. Uh, you know what? It's time for Angelo Fiorentino's uh, Farm Report. I have not really played much of Stardew Valley because um, it was recently Black Friday. And that week, there were a bunch of games on sale on the Nintendo Switch as well as a game I kind of had my eye on, but I didn't want to pay full price for because I'm cheap. And that would be Spider-Man on the PS4. Oh, okay. And wow, what a game. Like, you know, everybody kept saying, wow, you feel like Spider-Man. And it's, and it's probably the best superhero game I've ever played. Really, really well done. And um, although I, I don't know what it is about it. I don't like playing on my PS4. Uh, it has my PS4 is like a 2014 model that every once in a while tries to eject discs that are not in it. <laughs> uh, so it just randomly beeps. So I have to like unplug it, turn it off, and I, I've done all the remedies for it. Like I've pulled off the feet from underneath the the PS4. I've put it up on uh, different uh, rubber feet under there. This sounds and, like an episode of This Old House. Yeah. And now my controllers aren't charging properly, and apparently that's a thing. I looked it up online, so yeah. I, so it's it's really weird. My controllers are still working though, so I don't know. Every once in a while they'll charge. Every once in a while they won't. Regardless of that, Spider Man on the PS4 is a really, really, really good game. And on, uh, so I, I got that. And then my son had been asking about Sonic Mania. He seems to really love Sonic. He's been playing the first Sonic game. We have that on the 3DS, and he plays that a lot. Okay. And uh, he had seen something about Sonic Mania. He said he wanted that. And I said, when it goes on sale. And the next day I went on sale. So uh, he said, Daddy, it's on sale. So I bought it for him. And uh, I bought it for me too. And we've been playing. It's really, really well done. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what I wanted to say. So it's, it's a half your son, half you. Yeah. Yeah. He really liked it. And um, going back to Spider-Man, my daughter, I, I, want, I didn't really want to show them the game too much because it is a T for teen rated game. And there's a lot of violence in it. But I did want to show them the swinging in the city because I thought uh, that was really cool. And uh, my daughter was extremely impressed with, again, how much coding has to have gone into this. Because that's what she thinks about now when she sees video games because of her little coding club that she's in. And it makes me so happy to hear that. She was really impressed. And she's used to playing Nintendo games, which are much more cartoony, right? Right. And when she saw the graphics in Spider-Man, she's like, wow, this looks real. Because she's not used to seeing those types of games. And she was quite impressed. And uh, I let her give it a try, but it was really not for her. It's a little, a little beyond the scope of how she likes to play video games. She, as soon as there's too much camera control, not a thing for her. Double density. So in the intro uh, to this episode, I was talking about uh, uh, geriatric things, right? As a joke. Um, but I have an article that's kind of unnerving to me, and I'll explain why in a sec, um, that we're going to link to in the show notes uh, from The Atlantic. It's called The Facts Is Not Yet Obsolete, and it kind of goes into how um, the, both the fields of law and medicine rely on a fax machine. And it's, it opens up this anecdote of someone uh, needing um, to pay bail, and they can only do so by fax. And then the uh, clerk's office fax machine goes down, so this man has to spend an extra night in jail because the fax machine was broken, therefore they couldn't clear the uh, bail in time. And uh, that's just one anecdote um, in a very frustrating series of um, sort of ways in which different uh, industries use uh, fax machines. So I work in a medical field and I can tell you the fax is good and alive in 2018, my friend. It's upsetting to me. I do everything within my power in my job to not have to receive faxes. I used to get them a lot more when I first started in this position. I've been in it for five years. I've pretty much eliminated all faxes. And uh, it was interesting that today someone sent me an email asking me uh, how to hand in certain forms, if she could bring them in in person, or if I prefer 
sending me a fax. And I replied, please do not send me a fax. Do you even know where your fax machine is? Like in the, in the office? I honestly have no idea how faxes come into our office. I think they go through the photocopier. I know we send them through our photocopier. In our case, they do go through a photocopier both ways. Okay. Um, I do not want faxes. I actively try to avoid faxes. So you're anti-fax. Are you pro-pager? Like, let's just get into this 90s tech. Uh, are, pagers are used by doctors as well, aren't they? Yes. I, uh, one of my neighbors was a, oh, she still is a doctor. She's just not my neighbor anymore. She just moved away. But uh, I remember seeing her with a pager. Were you the uh, main reason why she moved away? I was not the main reason. Okay, perfect. They didn't move actually too far away. They just, they just had a couple of extra kids and they needed a bigger house. I figured I'd ask to see if there was some correlation between people moving away and where you live. No, no, no. Because every once in a while you're like, hey, there's a, (laughs) there's a house and, uh, in my neighborhood and maybe you should think about moving here. And I just, I'm wondering, you know. There are not that many houses for sale on my street. It's just, uh, it, it's a, I like my neighborhood. It's a nice little neighborhood. I took a picture of it today on, uh, and put it on Instagram if anybody's interested to see what my street looks like <laughs> and they can stalk me. But it was really foggy this morning. It sure and, was, uh, my friend. I didn't, do the, I didn't do the whole cliched thing of, look, hey, I live in Silent Hill, but I just uh, let the picture speak for itself. So the Atlantic article talks about how um, there was a startup called Patient Bank, which was trying to digitize medical records and how they went under earlier this year because of the resistance to um, moving from a physical realm to digital realm. And I thought that was really interesting that um, in the medical field, I guess, and I guess so in law enforcement, they believe that like um, physical ways in which you can transmit data, such as faxes, is a lot more, um, quote unquote, secure than digital ways. And, uh, you know, they talk about how even because you can tap into a phone wire, right? And you can sort of receive whatever information comes through. So it's not necessarily um, safer at all. It's just perceived in that way, right? Because I guess because of the influx of how we talk about um, uh, hacks and break-ins and things like that with stunning regularity um, in the, you know, the news realm. I think the way faxes are set up though makes it a little inherently more secure. That I, I kind of get that aspect of it. It's just, it has more, it has less to do with that because you can be very secure with email as well. Well, not necessarily email, but you can be pretty secure with digital files as well, depending on how you transfer them. But I think it has more to do with uh, being averse to change. And that's a major problem in especially those two uh, areas, uh, law enforcement and the medical industry. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I see this every day, the way that um, we receive faxes, the way that we have to then do data input and things like that. And it sort of um, uh, creates... uh, this kind of like workload that necessarily may not, should not be there perhaps. Yeah. Look, like I said, in my specific job, I have, because I'm, I'm in charge of the the requests that come to me specifically. And I made the form for that. For one of the first things I did, it was, there's no fax number on that form. Yeah. So there's like a standard template at work and my coworker put the fax number and then in brackets put really question mark. And uh, while funny internally, trying to deal with vendors uh, may not be the best idea to have that in there. I do want to close this off though by reading a quote that was from the article, if that's okay with you. Oh, it's always okay with me, Brian. So uh, in his 1995 book, Being Digital, the MIT Media Lab co-founder Nicholas Negroponte declared... Quote, the fax machine is a serious blemish on the information landscape, a step backwards whose ramifications will be felt for a long time, end quote. And I do feel that uh, in 2018, that is very <laughs> succinctly true, my friend. What do you think? What was the year of the quote? 95. 1995, yes. Um, absolutely, totally spot on. <laughs> uh, I'm curious to see in 2030 how uh, prevalent the fax will be. Isn't it that UFO place that needs you to uh, send them a fax? You are correct, my friend. You were talking about the uh, Kufos website. So if you have a Kufos 
org and click on report a sighting on the left-hand menu, you will be given a PDF with a number you can uh, mail this to, not even fax it to you, you can mail it to them. I bet you it's not a PDF they can fill, right? No, absolutely oh, not. No, you have to print it out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I do feel like the, prol- the proliferation of the fax machine in 2018 is horrifying, almost as horrifying as what we're going to talk about in the paranormal section, my friend, and I will see you there. See you there. Double Density presents the sounds of your youth. Welcome back to Double Density, as always, we're switching gears from tech to the paranormal. So the first item on the docket on this side of things this week is something that you want to talk about, something that is happening right now as we speak. It's the NASA Mars Insight uh, landing on Mars, right? So it's the space probe that launched uh, May 5th, 2018, and is hitting Martian soil right about now. One of the things that's marvelous about it is how hard it is to pull this off. People think, ah, oh, whatever, NASA can do it, they'll, they'll land it on Mars, but... Like they don't understand the mind-boggling calculations that have to go on to get this thing on that planet, and how many things can possibly go wrong. This probe actually had a whole bunch of problems, and and is already a few years late because of a few issues that it had. But it's there now. It landed. It's going to be taking amazing pictures of uh, the face of Mars and all the pyramids and stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. The entire landscape. It's going to prove uh, Richard C. Hoagland. Is that his name, yes. Brian? Yes, fantastic hair, C. Hoagland. Yeah, so it's going to prove him right. And uh, yeah. You want to talk about an insane kind of like evening. There's a is there, there's an MP3 out there of an old Coast to Coast AM um, episode from, uh, I think it's like March 2000 or like early 2000, uh, where Art Bell basically just uh, unleashes Richard C. Hoagland onto the world because he's seen Mission on Mars or Mission to Mars. And he believes there's like coded references to a bunch of things that he's been right about all along, which, you know, obviously is, um, it's kind of like cold reading and that like you kind of s- throw the suggestions out there and then like, you know, like a, it's like a, a false positive almost. Yeah, pretty much. Would you say he was like a, a man possessed? Ooh, ooh, good segue uh, into our meat and potatoes of the paranormal section this week. So uh, I guess we have to preface this first, but like you and I like to joke a lot. You and I like to kid a lot um, uh, about a lot of different things. And I feel like, th- unfortunately slash fortunately, this isn't one of those episodes, I do believe. In terms of what I think is going on when we talk about possessions and exorcisms, and that's what we're going to be talking about, I don't think it's anything uh, paranormal, uh, I think it has more to do with uh, unfortunate medical and mental disorders. I, I'm i curious to see where this segment goes because even though I don't think there's anything paranormal, I put this in my top five things that creep me out the most. Right. I think it's a very good place to put there. Um, like anything religious creeps me out, even though I'm not like super religious, but I did grow up in a Catholic household and, you know, I've been to church plenty of times and the whole idea that the Catholic Church actually, with all their power and might and money and everything, actually put some stock behind this. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder what they see in there that deserves their attention so much. So the basis of the conversation we're about to have is an article from the Atlantic magazine called Catholic Exorcisms Are Gaining Popularity in the U.S. And it kind of frames the story of like one particular person who goes through uh, an entire ordeal and then um, throws out a lot of information I think is really, really uh, interesting uh, given the topic at hand, right? So uh, for example, the idea that the Catholic Church, as you're saying, has invested money. And uh, I do believe that they were uh, 15 known Catholic exorcists like eight or nine years ago. They went from 15 to over 100. Right, which is a huge influx in numbers, which makes me believe that the Catholic Church um, does believe um, something to be going on, right? Where kind of in the past, they've kind of sort of um, pushed it to the side, more or less, I guess, in terms of like public viewing, right? 
Well, recent popes now have been much more interested. So they they mentioned Pope John Paul that in 1998 actually revised documents to do with exorcisms. And more recently, Pope Francis has talked about the devil as if he's a real thing and is not just some sort of idea of the evils of mankind. It's He's like a literal demon living somewhere in the universe. And I think that's an interesting distinction to make, right? So the idea of the devil as a concept versus the devil as a person. Um, and I feel like that's kind of um, the Catholic way and as well as like certain other uh, branches of uh, Protestant ways of viewing things. And this goes with other things in the Catholic Church. I Look, I like I said, I grew up Catholic. I did all my sacraments and all that stuff. And I only like figured out like, what, 10, 15 years ago that when you took the communion, you were literally... The body, Christ. the body yeah. of Christ and the uh, the blood of Christ. Uh, but yeah, this article kind of really makes a really um, interesting sort of like breakdown of uh, the process by which someone would need to go through, especially in the Catholic Church, um, in order to be able to qualify for an exorcism, right? Uh, and I do think that it, that is something that is not necessarily talked about a lot during the, pro- like, uh, you, the classic idea of, like, you are having problems, so therefore you call up the local parish and the, the parish gets in contact with, like, the region uh, the regional sort of like uh, exorcist who comes and sort of saves you, right? And that's kind of like the classic way of seeing things, but it's actually a much more complicated and drawn out process than just showing signs of uh, possession, right? So, I, how would you define possession? Because to me, it uh, definitely would be, and according to dictionary.com, and I agree with this, uh, the definition of an exorcism is expulsion or attempted expulsion of an evil spirit from a person or place. And I think we need to make that distinction about right now. We're talking about exorcisms um, when people are possessed, right? Because places being possessed, we can talk about um, another time, but I feel like this article is really centered on talking about um, the human effect of what happens to people. Yeah, this is totally to do with just people. They don't even mention uh, buildings or anything being possessed unless I I miss that. Uh, And the thing to understand is the Catholic Church rejects a lot of requests for exorcisms because they do research them. They look into them and see if there's anything that remotely resembles what they consider possession. And what they consider is, yes, the regular uh, change in personalities, but Also a change in uh, physical appearance of the person as well as things like scratches and people speaking languages they've never actually spoken. That's one of the things that, so I don't know if this has ever been caught on video or whatever, I've never actually seen anything like it. But if that's true, that is something completely bizarre. For sure. Where if somebody starts speaking an ancient language, I remember seeing a movie was, I think, with Patricia Arquette in the main role where she was writing in Aramaic or something like that. I can't remember the name of the movie. I'm sorry. That's, this is bad podcasting. I guess I have to, <laughs> um, but I, I, I don't remember that. It just came to my, uh, it just came to me right now. I couldn't, I, I didn't think of it when I was reading the article, so I didn't look it up, but there's a scene in the movie where she's writing Aramaic or Latin or something. And this is something that they talk about in the article. So the process you're actually talking about is something that Catholics call discernment, right? So, and I think something very important to note and something that's very interesting that's kind of lost on people is that part of that process is that the Catholic Church and these priests urge people to go see a medical health professional in order to go undergo a psychiatric evaluation. Um, and that's kind of where it stops for the majority of people because they discover that they may have uh, something like schizophrenia or dissociative disorders or things like that where they have uh, gone off their medication or things like that where they sort of, um, the human element of what they're going through kind of is revealed. Yeah, and that that's kind of 
what gives me pause about these things, right? I like to say I'm a skeptic and all that. You know, if I don't look into it too much, I would say, well, there it's all something medical. It's all something of a disorder, either a mental illness or in these cases, extreme uh, mental illness or of something like a, a personality disorder where, um, like they don't like to call it multiple personality disorder. I think they call it dissociative disorder, yep. if I'm yep. not mistaken. And, um, you know, uh, Hollywood movies and all that will make you think that's a lot more common than it is, but it is extraordinarily rare. And this is something that we wonder if that's what is happening in this case. But for the church to actually look into it so far deeply and still come up about saying, no, this person's possessed by some sort of demon, what is happening? What do they know that we don't know? Right. And I think that kind of brings to to mind the sort of like the chicken and the egg kind of, of analogy, right? Because we talk about uh, mental disorders and things like that. And we understand that at a certain level, some of them are created due to uh, chemical imbalances and things like that. But some of them, you know, there there is no real reason as to why these people have this, right? So maybe the suggestion there, some might argue, would be um, some form of possession. Yeah, one of the startling stats they gave was that 80% of the people that come forward uh, as possibly being possessed are victims of sexual abuse. And uh, they did mention this article uh, that the irony was not lost on the writer about how, uh, you know, the Catholic Church is involved in this, in that they are actually, uh, in many cases, responsible for some of the sexual abuse, which is horrible to think about. Yeah, absolutely. But I do think that like, um, barring talking about specifically the Catholic church, that stat is really interesting because it then asks the question, um, uh, is there a fragility of the soul, right? Cause they talk in the article about the idea of the soul wound, um, sort of like opening yourself up to, um, being open to dealing with, uh, someone possessing you because of the fact that like your mental armor isn't where it should be. Well, you know, the other explanation is that if these people were abused, at the time of the abuse, they disassociated with what was happening and that created this other personality that's now manifesting and is angry. Yeah, right? well, it's kind of like a, that, it's, it's masking it. That's what uh, a skeptic would say, yeah, right? Like, yeah. uh, to me, that is the most logical explanation to what's happening. But the Catholic Church thinks there's something else going on. And I, I would wonder, like, uh, so here we live in Quebec and uh, the Catholic Church, which used to run absolutely everything, uh, lost a lot of power in the 60s and has been has been dwindling ever since at this point. And I don't feel like a lot of people are actually religious here. No, I don't um, think so either. I think that, like, people like to claim religiosity, especially, like, in small town Quebec, but I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore, as we've seen attendance numbers have gone down. Um, churches have been converted and demolished into, uh, you know, uh, sort of like um, condos and things like that. I've seen that happen to two sites in particular. Um, so I do believe we're moving more into a, a secular culture. Um, but something to note too is that in the article, they talk about how the move away from traditional church establishments has opened up, um, especially like with millennials, apparently the idea of trying to fill that void with things like Ouija boards and the paranormal and healing crystals and like birthstones and things like that. Right. And their argument is saying that perhaps because of this, um, they're opening themselves up to um, the ability to uh, allow uh, these demons into you. So this is basically saying that stuff like Ouija boards and healing crystals and all that is real. And that's something I contend, right? Like I don't, I don't think any of that stuff is real. 
And uh, I, so, I, so, so for once, I think, well, not for once, but I do feel that <laughs> there is a certain power to a lot of these things, right? And I think that like you accord a lot of powers um, to these things, like society, for example, like I, strangely enough, I was in the middle of a presentation today, uh, listening to someone talk about how in Africa, um, certain people who are afflicted with a certain eye disease go blind and then uh, they are uh, cast away as like a witch or like cursed or whatever. Right. So societally they're seen in oh, a certain that's way. Horrible. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's really bad, but I do feel like you give um, power society to a lot of these different kinds of things. And I do think that like, this is a good example of that. Right. Yeah. Us giving power to these, um, you know, these things made by Parker brothers, uh, you know, like I always wonder about the Ouija board and they, when they brought it up here saying that that opens you up to spirits uh, and the main subject of the article has pretty much all the checkboxes of what the Catholic Church considers somebody open to possession, right? She was abused. Right. Uh, she has uh, chemical dependency. She's been an alcoholic. Uh, she played around with Ouija boards and possibly witchcraft. And that, according to the church, opens one up to being possessed by the devil or an, or a random demon or whatever. And what they talked about, it was actually... Uh, really startling uh, what this poor woman has gone through. Yeah, it is quite the ordeal that she's gone through and she's gone through multiple episodes, right? And, um, and I was talking to my fiance about this before we started recording and I was kind of making the analogy uh, or sort of like the, the connection between like someone who's experienced something, um, through a paranormal lens, you know, like a UFO abductee and then like someone who's dealt with, uh, very unfortunate traumatic experiences, um, that may indicate uh, demon possession. What I'm not trying to do is trying to draw like an exact kind of link between the two, but I feel like it is very similar in terms of the way that like only the person knows what they've gone through. Well, absolutely. And this is why I'm like treading carefully here, right? I don't want to be saying that it's, oh, it's nothing. It's just, you know, the, she's not well. I don't know. Like if there's anything, you know, I'm, we've, we've established, I'm the skeptic of the two of us more so than you. And I still don't see that this is some sort of possession. It's possibly some unknown medical condition that's extraordinarily extreme. Like, you know, like Ebola, like that's an extreme medical condition that will kill you. This is something else on the opposite end in terms of being an extreme uh, mental illness that manifests itself with more physical issues as well. I don't know, like some of the stuff they say is people writing appearing on them and the language thing. That really freaks me out. But I wonder, is there real documentation about that? And I, I couldn't really find anything other than more anecdotal evidence. Well, here's some, some kind of fruit for thought for you, right? Um, that class is saying of like, uh, the incorrect saying of like, we only use 10% of our brains. That is untrue. We've only really mapped about 10% of how the brain functions, right? So there's still 90% of the brain that we're not sure how, how it's properly mapped out. And I do feel like in some cases, not all, because I definitely, being the less skeptical person here, uh, I definitely do believe, like it's the same thing with like UFO abductions, right? Like if you look at the stats, there's a certain percentage that you can't explain. And I feel like it's the same thing with unfortunately like this rising phenomenon of people who feel um, out of their bodies and who feel like there's an intruder, um, an invasive voice kind of controlling them because there's that too, right? Yeah, exactly. And like I said, I'm having a hard time reconciling this. There's, a, there's a, an absolute cognitive dissonance for me, right? Because it, it goes against everything I, I choose to believe or understand in the way the world works. And again, that's why this isn't like my top five creepy things. I'm, we're, I'm reading a book right now for uh, the UFO book club that we'll hopefully be recording eventually uh, in the next uh, few weeks or months. And there was a story about a woman transforming into a werewolf in the middle of a sermon. Right. 
And that really freaked me out. I'm reading it at night uh, in bed and there's noises outside and it frightened me, Brian. <laughs> um, so I kind of, there's two things I want to kind of uh, touch upon in the next little part of our discussion here. And if, if I may quote from the article, um, and it's something that I'm going to kind of get into in a sec, but um, from the article, so many modern social ills feel dark and menacing and beyond human control. The opioid epidemic, the permanent loss of blue collar jobs, blighted communities that breed alienation and dread. Um, and I feel, so I took uh, an English lit class about um, uh, supernatural fiction uh, maybe 10 years ago. And it's really interesting because the teacher uh, kind of, kind of positioned the entire class as saying that like whenever, there is a great societal upheaval. Um, there tends to be a rise, not necessarily just in visiting churches, for example, in like classic sort of religious ways, but there's also a rise in the unknown, the supernatural and, and a way of like safely confronting your fears. And I do feel um, like, for example, like take the economic crisis of 2008, right? So the downturn in the States, what was popular then? Um, was it um, Limp Bizkit? You're like 10 years off. No, the Twilight book series was the biggest thing on the earth, right? Oh yeah, that's true. Um, and so uh, the idea that like you can safely kind of explore your fears through um, uh, the paranormal fiction and in some cases uh, paranormal uh, truths exists, right? And I feel like the rising kind of stress of living a day-to-day basis uh, in 2018 kind of necessitates a way for us to safely engage with our fears. And unfortunately, I do feel like for a certain percent of the population, those uh, fictional avenues become realistic. Well, they, they do mention in the article that the church blames things like Harry Potter right. for people's interest in, in magic. Uh, so happens my kid's been reading uh, Harry Potter. She went through all the books in a few months and now is watching the movies. She's nine years old. Uh, so far, so good. No possessions. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it on your end. Uh, something else I'd like to quote from. Um, uh, so there's a handbook for sort of diagnosing a mental disorders. So it's called the DSM. So I'm going to quote directly from the article. The most recent edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, known as the DSM-5, seems to recognize the still mystifying dimension in abnormal psychology. It lists a possession form subtype of dissociative identity disorder and notes that the majority of possessions states around the world are an accepted part of specific spiritual practices, whether they be trances, shamanic rituals, or speaking in tongues. The DSM-5 is not saying that possession is a scientifically verifiable phenomenon, but rather is acknowledging that many people around the world understand their abnormal mental experiences and behaviors through a spiritual framework. What does that mean, really? Like, does it mean that it's, they just can't diagnose it scientifically, so we'll just chalk it up to being a spiritual thing and part of a person's spirituality? Like, So something I was wondering like do atheists get possessed? Have See, that's a really like, interesting question because it's also a question of exposure, right? And, I, and that's something that I was talking about earlier with my fiance, the idea that like you only know what a possession is because you've read about it, you've heard about it, right? You're, you're entrenched in it. Like, so for example, like in Africa, the idea of the schematic ritual, um, and then she brought up the idea of Santeria, right? Um, and how that, uh, it kind of ties into a lot of this in terms of the way in which we look at spiritual rituals and how, um, they sort of affect us. So I always wonder, like my, like my kids don't know much about religion because we're not, we're not a religious household. And I wonder, like, do they understand the, like, can they, are, does that inoculate them against possession? See, I don't know if that's the case or not, because I do feel like there are certain people out there who um, are not necessarily religious, don't believe in this, but um, have exposure to the idea. Hmm. So therefore then 
um, it's implanted in their brains or in their hearts, depending on which, cause I'm of like right now, like I'm kind of riding two mind carts on two different tracks, right? So the one, um, that believes that the majority of these things are definitely, um, psychologically induced, whether it's subconscious or conscious. And then on the other track, I'm, I have the other foot in the other mind cart that's kind of believing that like this is something that we unfortunately, um, don't yet necessarily understand on a physical plane. It can be spiritual in nature. Uh, you know, and then that's the thing is that like I can't definitively, um, prove the existence of either of these sorts of tracks but they definitely both exist um in my mind Hmm. it's a toughie my friend it is something that i feel like is we're going much deeper than we usually do here on double density and i'm okay with that i think that like this is an episode that needs to happen yeah well that's why the first half was so uh joyful and liked and then this part (laughs) just brings everything crashing down no but i feel Uh, like we're handling this in a very interesting kind of way that kind of is trying to sort of explore the notions of you know like um the unfortunate side effects of like mental disorders but also like trying to understand what's going on in the spiritual world without like making fun of or making light of either or because i do think that like they're both um very important i do know that some of our listeners are uh, very religious and i do want to sort of like um not necessarily like uh cater to them but kind of open the acknowledge the possibility like the that that could be it too right because i don't know at the end of the day well th- and that's the right answer here i don't know uh, i don't have the knowledge here to understand what somebody who's looked into this deeply looking at it this way there's it's really hard to explain it's it's look i still likely think these are all some sort of undiagnosed medical issue but are you prepared to sort of make that like a blanket statement for everyone? Because I'm definitely not ready to. No, do that. not at all, not at all. And that's it. There's like a tiny bit of me that thinks, who knows what's out there and what's happening in these cases. It's it's hard as somebody who's not very religious. Although the thing is, even though I'm not religious, I know a lot about the Catholic religion because I grew up in it. And well, for sure, so did I. So there's a lot to know here and to understand, but I don't know or understand most of it, and I wonder. Like, is there an exorcist that we can talk to here in Quebec? Do we even have one? That's a really good question. I mean, we do still have a, a pretty uh, decent uh, Catholic following, you know. There's a lot to unpack here, and I feel like we've done a really good job of sort of starting that conversation. And there's a couple more things I'd like to talk about, if that's okay with you. Because <laughs> uh, this is um, a topic that is endlessly fascinating to me, endlessly fascinating to me, just because of the very nature, right? Uh, uh, for some reason this feels like really real to me and I don't know why because I have never experienced it myself nor thankfully have I been around a loved one or like a friend who has had to undergo or go through um, something like this but it, it feels strikingly realistic the idea that like it's it's lurking around the corner almost okay well ultimately skeptics believers whatever whoever talks about this has to understand whether you believe it or not it's real for the persons it's happened to right yeah whatever is causing it Something has to stop it. Yeah. And if the the therapy maybe of this exorcism actually does help the person, great. Absolutely. Right? But where I worry is I've heard stories of exorcisms going bad and people dying. Now, I don't know if that's actually true. Uh, I think it's it's, it's way less true in the West where it's sort of like well-regulated, but I think like in um, third world countries, I think unfortunately, like and I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I feel like that um, is more of an area wherein a lot of these um, become a little problematic in that way. They've even mentioned like just talking about this can open you up to possession. So what are we doing here? Is this uh, some sort of bad idea that we're actually talking about? This? I know like some podcasts refuse to talk about this. Well, I also think that like um, we're not... 
there's a way to approach this that I feel like we're doing the right way and that like some people um, mock or are flippant about um, this sort of thing. And I feel like that opens you up to sort of um, the issue at hand. Yeah. And I, I don't feel at all like we're, we, we know we've made our little jokes because that's, that's our shtick, but uh, none of this is funny no, in terms no. of when it's happening to somebody in this uh, this Atlantic article is far from uh, from jovial, and that's the thing is like uh, so at the end like sort of like looking at the two different tracks right because it's either mental disease or um, a literal demon inhabits your body right like there's no like upside there's to no this good thing yeah exactly like it's an either or um, and it's it's kind of uh, interesting to think about in very abstract uh, different ways and uh, in my early conversation with my fiance she actually brought up something really interesting that I didn't think about but she was talking about like John Edwards right like the idea of cold reading and how mm. um, that is sort of like a a question of like who and what you know uh, is considered like a charlatan right in this kind of realm and who has the right to dictate um how we handle these things right so i mean like for example like in the catholic church it's top down right so the idea that you have to go through this entire process and i think it's really interesting that they include a medical mental health component to this before they decide to to go forward um which i think speaks volumes to how seriously they view this issue because you know um uh, science and medicine don't necessarily see eye to eye all the time and i do feel like it's very interesting that in this case that that is an added component to the entire process exactly you know there's undiagnosed medical and mental issues all the time and ultimately this is probably what this is if we want to bring it down to like a, a materialistic worldview of understanding trying to understand everything mm-hmm. but you know like you said those two tracks um I keep thinking of that scene from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And no matter where you think about it, you're like one of those uh, poor uh, minions that gets stuck being pulled from one track to the other and <laughs> right, dying. Right. Because no matter what it is, be it something earthly as the explanation or demonic in nature, uh, both are bad. Yeah. Like there's no upside to this unfortunately. And so there's two things I kind of want to touch upon before we finish up here. The first is like, this has sort of existed time memoriam, right? The idea of like possession of demons, um, you know, centuries, if not millennia um, have sort of like, we've gone through this and they've sort of been very prevalent. Um, And I do feel more recently, like, for example, like the exorcist uh, in the seventies really caused a spike in interest in this, right? Yeah. And now there's the exorcist TV series as well. Right. And I mean, this kind of ties back to what you're saying before about the idea of, um, uh, familiarity, like the chilling adventures of Sabrina, for example, right? Like the idea that like that is literal witchcraft going on. Um, and once again, according power to that, um, if you do believe that there's good and then there has to be evil at the same time. So many philosophies and religions talk about the world being in a balance, yeah. yin and yang, and, uh, there's good and evil. There's always a balance, even the force. <laughs> right. If you're going to look at Star Wars, there's a balance to it. No, for sure. For sure. One final thing I'd like to close on is a quote and kind of like a, a something I want to think, I want you to think about because it kind of ties into what you were saying before, but from the article. So Father Vincent Lampert, the exorcist from Indianapolis, remembered a young man who came to see him seeking an exorcism, but told he was experiencing symptoms of schizophrenia. So this young man says, you can tell me that I'm schizophrenic, but you can't tell me why. Lampert recalled the young man saying, if it's demonic, at least I have my why. We're always looking for the why. And that's one of the reasons religion exists is a search for understanding why we're here. Yeah. And uh, religion, philosophy, science. They're all kind of different tracks to sort of get to the same end, I think, right? Exactly. They're trying to answer. That's the biggest question is like, uh, what's the meaning of life? 
the cosmic question, right? I think it's the most important singular question that people struggle with uh, in terms of like their day-to-day lives, how they live their lives in totality, how they approach um, living life. And I, I do find this quote kind of interesting because it kind of sums up how I feel about the entire kind of uh, topic at hand, right? Because like, well, uh, mental disorders do exist. Unfortunately, a lot of people are afflicted and they conflate mental disorders with um demon possession or some you know some kind of possession at the same time like there is always that possibility there that they may not be wrong and that like it can be both and for now we don't really know the answer and that's why we're talking about it here it's something that we can consider paranormal because the the events surrounding this woman in this article are absolutely bizarre for sure frightening for sure whether they're whether they're caused by a mental illness or not, or some other force out there, who knows, but it's absolutely astounding what's, what's happened to her. Uh, I encourage you to read the article. Absolutely. Uh, don't read it alone at night in the dark. Do not do You're that. You're not going to want to do that. Do not do that. I read it in the light yesterday with my son playing video games next to <laughs> Perfect. And I feel like that is a great place to kind of bring this sobering uh, episode 84 of Double Density uh, to an end. If you uh, have any thoughts about this, we'd love to hear what you think, how you feel. Uh, you can go ahead and tweet at us at double underscore density, facebook.com slash double density podcast. Same thing on Instagram. Head over to double density.net click on the contact button to let us know how you feel about um, possession, your thoughts on it. Is it science? Is it something else? We'd love, love, love to hear um, what you think about that. Right, Angela? Yeah, I feel like this has been one of our heaviest topics ever. Oh, for sure. But I do, I do feel like it is an important topic to talk about and to approach. And I feel like we approach this in the right way. And and if you feel we didn't approach it in the right way, please let us know. Like we want to know uh, how you feel about this. It's something that it's um, it's it's a very complex kind of situation. Very like, yeah, I, and it, I hate to be reductionist, but it, it is very complex. Yeah. It, well, I mean there's no better way to put it it's there's so many aspects to it that we don't understand we want to understand people think they understand it but maybe they don't like that is such a good way of phrasing it it, it's one of those cases where the it's probable that both sides are wrong right the church is probably wrong and science is probably wrong about what's happening yeah and I think that like that's kind of the more the the, the takeaway for me is that like they, they they can both be wrong and they can both be right too right because one doesn't necessarily negate the other I think that's a good place to uh, kind of end this for now and I think we're probably going to talk about this uh, in the future maybe not just necessarily people being possessed or maybe uh, possibly places being possessed yeah I have kind of an idea in my head of what I like to do um, sort of to touch upon this topic at a later date but we'll see how that shakes out because it's not just entirely dependent upon me I kind of have some people I'd like to talk to about this and see where that goes but I feel like this is a good place to end things Angela how does that sound to you yeah, sounds good to me. Great. Tune in next week as we sail the good ship USS Nostromo, worrying about the bugs that may live inside of our stomachs. I'll see you later, Angelo. Great. That sounds pretty scary to me, actually. <laughs> Perfect. See you, dude. Ciao. Virtuostic? Is that the right word? Uh, <laughs> virtuistic? <laughs> Funny aside, I just realized uh, a few weeks ago that uh, my name on uh, my Kijiji 
site was uh, Dick Hoagland. I put that as a <laughs> fake name. I don't know, years ago. And I just fixed it. 